0: Hello. Hey, hey everybody. Hey. Wow, I got some claps. I'll try my Hey, everybody. Hey. All right, wow. Uh, you know, I'm not, I'm not the kind of guy that does that all the time, but I thought I would just to see what would happen. I might do it more often, and, you know, it's a nice little boost before we get going. Uh, before I do get into the sermon, I do want to highlight one thing that was already been highlighted, but if you're relatively new, you may not uh, be aware of how cool this can be, and also uh, if you've been around for a while, you might forget. But I want to highlight to you Water Ice Wednesday, and here's why. I don't know if you've had the same conversations that I've had. I might have a, them a little more often than you because of what I do for a living, and when people find out I'm the pastor of this church, they usually, sometimes they'll say something about our church, um, uh, nice things, uh, <laughs> otherwise they just probably twiddle their thumbs ooh, do, 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 and then look for a way... Uh, uh, at the nearest exit, but uh, often I will hear from people, and when I say often I'm not exaggerating, that they found out about our church or they know about our church, even if they've never visited, uh, because of Water Ice Wednesday. And they'll go, oh, you're the church with the water ice. (laughs) And it's not, as I've had conversations about this, it's not just that people get free water ice, although I'm sure they like that, who wouldn't, especially in July, right? But uh, being on our corner and on our sidewalk, handing out and uh, water ice and hanging out with people has communicated something to our neighbors about our desire to be friends and connect. And so that has been really significant, not only to people who have then later come and given us a try, but also just people who know about us or live on our block or live in the neighborhood. So I would say... Um, and ask you, uh, to plan ahead for Water Ice Wednesday. It's a great thing just to pop into because, oh, right, Water Ice Wednesday is happening. I can, uh, drop by and get some water ice and hang out for a little bit, but it's actually more significant than you realize. And so if you can, I would plan ahead to come to this. And if you can, to yourself, just make a commitment, I'm going to, I'm going to plan for Wednesdays. I'm going to be there, uh, you could be surprised by the end of the summer, the people that you meet and the friendships that you make, and the people that you impact with as, a com- as part of our community. Um, and also, uh, that's sort of the difference we can make, and it is making our community. But just uh, for you, if you're newer to the church, uh, it is a great way to meet people and a great way to build community over the summer. A lot of our small groups have alternative schedules over the summer. Some of them don't meet at all. This is a great way to connect with people. We put the most time and energy into this, although it's a very simple idea. So if you're uh, wanting to make some friends or connect with the people that you know, and your small group isn't meeting, or you haven't got to know people yet, try coming a few times to Water Ice Wednesday. See who you meet. And then uh, right afterwards, it's time for dinner. Go out to dinner to get to know people or, or go to a movie or whatever it is you want to do uh, with the people that you meet. And the summer can actually be a time of really getting to know people and not just a time uh, that we stop trying and, and take a break. Does that make sense? All right. So that's my plug. It starts this Wednesday. Uh, we're starting with our simple version, which is water ice on a table and some music and hanging out and a box of toys and activities for the kids. But occasionally we'll, do, we'll sort of blow it up. And do a barbecue and things like that. So uh, keep your ears and eyes open for that. I read an article that has stuck with me. I read it a few years ago. And the article detailed uh, what some are calling a growing trend in our society. And it's this idea that people call secular tithing. Now, for those of you who don't know what tithing is, tithing is a principle in many faiths, particularly Christianity and Judaism, that encourages people of faith to set aside 10% of their income and give it to their local place of worship as an act of worship and as a way to support the work of God in that congregation. Now, that may sound crazy to you, depending on your background, or it might sound really familiar to you depending on the way you grew up and your experience in life. But currently, the idea is spreading among folks who don't hold to any particular expression of faith. So in the article, Giving Your Wealth Away, An Argument for Secular Tithe, uh, Sierra Black laments the fact that she's not as generous as her great-grandmother, who was a devout tither to her church. And as you read the article, it's easy to get the sense that she feels like she's missing out On something. And one thing she points out is that the middle class uh, in America, of which she's a part, tends to be the least giving of their resources, giving away about 2.5% of their income, while other groups like the working poor are the most generous, giving away about 4.5% of their income. And she wonders if she's missing something about making a difference and feeling connected to her community and the people around her. So she comes to this conclusion. She says, I think it's time to make secular tithing a middle-class trend. Those of us who don't go to church every Sunday may not have the deeply ingrained tradition of giving my great-grandmother had when she put her envelope in the offering plate each week. That's no excuse for not giving our share. And her sentiment has been echoed in lots of different places, and articles and posts that I've read over the years seem to indicate that people from all sorts of backgrounds, religious, not religious, religious, feel uncomfortable about not having consistent patterns of giving in their lives. And there's this overarching sense that I get that many people feel like they're missing out on something by not being more generous. And so today we're going to examine, is that true? If we're not generous, do we really miss out on anything? Are the people who are saying uh, we should start a trend of secular tithing, are they right? And is there something about generosity and giving that's essential to being happy? And to do that, we'll be looking at a passage that explores God's design for generosity and the challenge of generosity, the motivation for generosity, and some of the practical aspects. God's design, the challenge, the motivation, the practical aspects. All right, you guys ready? I'm gonna do the thing I did at the beginning of this. You guys ready? Oh, wow. All right. 2 Corinthians 9, 6 to 15. Remember this. Whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. And whoever sows generously will also reap generously. Each of you should give what you've decided in your heart to give, not reluctantly or under compulsion. For God loves a cheerful giver. And God is able to bless you abundantly, so that in all things, at all times, having all that you need, you will abound in every good work. As it's written... They have scattered abroad their gifts to the poor. Their righteousness endures forever. Now, he who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will also supply and increase your store of seed and will enlarge the harvest of your righteousness. You will be made rich in every way so that you can be generous on every occasion. And through us, your generosity will result in thanksgiving to God. This service that you perform is not only supplying the need of the Lord's people, but it's also overflowing and many expressions of thanks to God. Because of the service by which you have proved yourselves, people will praise God for the obedience that accompanies your confession of the gospel of Christ and for your generosity in sharing with them and with everyone else. And in their prayers for you, their hearts will go out to you because of the surpassing grace God has given you. Thanks be to God for his incredible or indescribable gift. Now, a little background here I think is really helpful to know what the author, the author here is Paul, he's an early uh, founder of many churches all over the Near East, parts of Europe. To understand why he's writing, it's helpful. So he writes a lot of things, but in this section of this letter, he turns his attention to famine relief. So Paul is encouraging the Corinthians to give generously to help the Christians in Jerusalem who are suffering and in the uh, in the midst of a famine. And in the process, I think he conveys some really potentially life-changing ideas about generosity. So the first thing I think we can see from this passage is giving, is that giving affects more than our pocketbook. And as we look at this passage, what I think we see is that generosity is something that God has designed to affect our whole lives. Giving affects your whole life life. I think we see this in three ways. First, generosity has this multi-layered effect on those who receive the gift or the benefit of the generosity uh, in the moment. So in verse 12, it says, this service that you perform is not only supplying the needs of the Lord's people, but it's also overflowing in many expressions of thanks to God. So what we see here is that certainly the people who receive the gifts have their material needs met. Uh, But it also says that's not all. It says we see this process of uh, overflow of many expressions of thanks to God. So praise or worship is what happens when an emotional or spiritual or intellectual need is met. So there's a need that's being met that is immaterial as well as material or spiritual as well as physical. See, we—I don't think I have to convince you this. We have needs that go beyond like physical sustenance or material uh, material needs. We have needs for relationship, for laughter, for peace, for joy. And on one level, I think we can we can look at ourselves as just like these combination of elements and uh, chemicals. And I've heard some. People say, oh, you know, human, humanity, we're just, each one of us, we're just a sack of chemicals that needs sort of certain material things to survive. But if someone told you you were just a sack of chemicals, you'd probably be offended. Why? I mean, we are a collection of material elements, but we're so much more than that. And we have more than material needs. We need love and relationships and hope and purpose. And when those needs are met, we can't help but feel gratitude. Even if we're not sure where to direct it, we feel it. And so Paul here is saying that by giving, we are meeting more than the material needs of others. We're also meeting their immaterial needs. We are, and we see that gratitude spills over to God. But the the act of giving has an impact not just on the people who receive, but also on the people who give. So after encouraging the Corinthians to give generously, Paul continues in verse 8, and he says, And God is able to bless you abundantly so that in all things, at all times, having all that you need, you will abound in every good work, in all things. And then verse 11, he says, You will be made rich in every way, in all things, in every way. And here I think Paul is making the point that as the Corinthians are generous, God will be generous to them. But notice he doesn't say that God will bless their finances in particular. He doesn't even mention money. But instead he says in all things, in every way. And one of the points I think that Paul is making here is that generosity affects every area of our lives. Generosity affects impacts, affects every area of your life. Now, a lot of times, I think our tendency is really much more to try and chop up our lives, have little compartments here and there where different parts of our lives live, and we're quite happy if they don't interact. So I've got friends over here, I've got my sex life over here, I've got my money over here, and we like to keep them separate and private from each other. And we think almost as, as we do that we can keep control of different areas of our lives. So my job might be out of control, but that doesn't mean my friendships or my marriage will be affected. Or I can keep this little addiction over here in this corner, but it doesn't mean it will affect my friendships or my marriage. But the thing is, and we all know this, life doesn't work like that. Everything connects to everything else in our lives. It's like going to the doctor and saying, Doc, I'm sick. And she starts asking you questions about work and your diet and stress at home. And you say, wait, 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 wait wait a minute. Don't ask me about those things. If you want to do some blood work, that's fine. But let's leave my work life and my diet out of this. But... There are so many things that could be affecting your health. Your illness could be because of stress. Stress at work, stress at home, or something, something that you ate, right? Your illness could be psychosomatic. It could be in your head in some ways. Who knows? But all of those things are connected. Every part of our life is connected to the other. And if we cut one part off, the rest suffers. Or if we think that we can hide or push something back in one corner and the rest of our lives will work just fine. It may work for a while. We may find we just have like a low-grade fever instead of pneumonia, but it catches up to you. I think what secular tithers are finding is that we cannot separate out our finances and our generosity from the other areas of our lives. They're connected. They affect each other. And I read this other article Uh, in ScienceMag.org, entitled Spending Money on Others Promotes Happiness. Maybe some of you read this. I don't know. (laughs) A lot of people on ScienceMag.org, maybe. I don't know. Um, But they did a study. And for years, uh, research that different people have done has continually shown the same thing, and that is once your baseline needs are met, food and shelter... Uh, the amount of money that you have has little to no effect on your happiness. I'll say that again. For years and years and years, study after study after study has shown that after your material needs are met, roof over your head, food on the table, you know, if you have kids, they can go to school, right? After all of those things are met, the more or less money you have above that line has little to no effect on your experience of happiness. So what this article did is they wanted to take it, or this study wanted to take it another step forward. And what they did was they surveyed everyone in December about sort of their emotional state, how, they, how happy they were, how they were feeling before they got year-end bonuses, all right? So they're all people working in professions got year-end bonuses. And then they surveyed people after They had spent their year-end bonus. And what they found, and you may not be surprised about this, is that the people who spent the bonus on themselves showed zero increase in happiness. They reported that they were just in the same place. The people who spent their money pro-socially or on other people uh, reported significant improvement in terms of their state of being and the way they reported how happy they were. Generosity affects every other area of our lives. And I think what Paul is doing here is pointing out that that's part of our design. We talked in week one that God is a generous God. And if we follow what the scripture says about us, we're made in the image of God. So if we're not generous, it's like cutting off part of who we are. We become less human. We thrive less. It's that significant because we're not reflecting the design of who we are. We're not reflecting who God is. And we lose in that situation. I think it's no wonder that people from all different backgrounds are discovering and understanding the powerful effect that generosity has in our lives. And giving like God is a trigger that releases God's blessings into every area of our lives. It's not the only trigger. There's certainly more to living life than being generous. And it's not black and white. So you'll notice that this passage says in every way. So it's not specific. That doesn't tell us how God blesses givers. There's no formula for I put fifty dollars in and my kids will start listening to me or if I tithe, I'll meet my life partner. He doesn't say that. Oh, well, that would motivate a lot of people, right? But what we can learn from this passage is that generosity is significant, that it's connected to every area of our lives, including finding someone or the health of our kids and our way we relate to them. And if we lose or compartmentalize generosity and think that we can be happy, If we ignore it, we're setting ourselves up. The third way we can see generosity affecting our whole lives is the effect that it has on community. So we've talked about those given to, we've talked about the givers, but it also impacts community, the communities around us. So in verse 8 it says, so that in all things at all times, having all that you need, you will abound in every good work. And then verse 11 it says, you will be made rich in every way, so that you can be generous on every occasion. So Paul, I think, is talking about something bigger here than just a one-time gift of famine relief to this church. He's talking about ongoing interactions of generosity at all times, on every occasion. And as we give, we see that it activates grace in those we give to. And at the same time, we've explored how it triggers the outpouring of grace in our lives. Now, if the people around us begin to give to us as well, not only is the flow of grace triggered because of our generosity, but it's also activated through the generosity shown to us by others. You see where this is headed? So the generosity we show and the generosity shown to us in community has the possibility to build on itself in a powerful and amazing way. You see that? And the idea here is that the more we give and receive in community, the more, quote, God is able to bless you abundantly so that in all things, at all times, having all that you need, you will abound in every good work. It's written, they have scattered abroad their gifts to the poor, their righteousness endures forever. In that passage, the you, the word that's translated you, is Plural. In other words, Paul is not speaking to individuals, he's speaking to the whole community as a community. Paul is saying to this Christian community in Corinth, as an example of what he's talking about, he quotes a passage that refers to they and their. So those giving to community are experiencing grace on top of grace, and the results are not just in the community but they explode out into the surrounding world. They abound into, quote, every good work. It's a community that doesn't just exist for itself, but impacts the world around it. Everything God does always comes back to this, his mission. It's never just about you, although I'm trying to motivate you with the benefit that this could have in your life. But it's never just about you. And it's never just about me. It's always about his mission in the world. And we see that again here. So if we're going to impact Philadelphia, if we're going to be a place that 21st century people can find faith, if we're going to be part of seeing our great city become even better, generosity is key. It's part of it. So you may have wondered before, why do people give to the church? And perhaps you may have thought, bless you, okay. And perhaps you just thought, well, it's just based on some ancient, maybe even dogmatic commands that people feel that it's their religious duty to fulfill. And it's true, the Bible does have a lot to say about giving and generosity, and some of those things are commands. But that is so not the point. The point in giving and the point of giving to the church is that it is a real way to invest in seeing the multiplied grace, the multiplied grace of God released in me, in this community, and in our city, in both material ways and immaterial ways. It's a way of making, different, making a difference in our whole lives. Who wouldn't want that? but it's not so easy, is it? You know, the tricky thing is that the very things that Paul says will be triggered in our lives through generosity are the things, the same things, that money promises to give us as well, but without the risk of giving. And that's the challenge of generosity. Generosity. The challenge of generosity is that money promises what generosity delivers. Money promises what generosity delivers. Maybe that's something that can get somewhere in your head and your heart that you'll never forget. Money promises what generosity delivers. Think about the messages we get all the time buy this you'll feel happy. Get this car, and the girls will like you. Have a certain amount of money in the bank or saved for retirement, and then you'll have peace, security. Money basically promises that if we have a lot of it, that in all things, at all times, you will have all that you need. And this is is easier to believe because when we have the money, we think that we'll also have control as well. Right? There's no risk. We're, taking, we're trying to take risk out of our lives, we're trying to build security. But what we don't realize, like the study I referenced earlier points out, that focusing money on ourselves never pays off. never pays off in that immaterial way our experience of life it never delivers and if anything it demands more of us why don't i feel happy i got this great job why don't i feel happy i must not have enough more money will make me happy More will give me peace. More will make you feel okay about yourself. But it's always more. It's never enough. And what happens, instead of our money serving us and bringing us happiness, we serve it. It becomes like a God, demanding more of our time, more of our energy, more of our money. And if you notice in this passage... Generosity produces thanksgiving to God. Lack of generosity takes that worship away from God and refocuses it on money. And I think it's no, it's no wonder that Jesus famously said, no one can serve two masters. Either you will hate the one and love the other or be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. Now, I'm not down or I'm not hating on saving for retirement or whatever, or having money in the bank or planning for the future at all. I'm trying to do all those things myself. But sometimes worshiping money seems safer because we think we're controlling it When really it's controlling us. And generosity is the key to flipping that script. So what can motivate us? I think I've already shared some things about community and experience of life. But let's look a little more closely. What motivates generosity? One powerful motivator is the understanding of grace. So verse 10 says, Now he who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will also supply and increase your store of seed. And will enlarge the harvest of your righteousness. Understood here, I think, is that everything we have comes from God and is given to us. That's a theme of this series. You can never get that far from it if you understand the source of every good and perfect thing in your life. And according to the writings of Scripture, it's from above, from the heavenly Father of lights, from God. It's all a gift of grace. None of it is earned. Even what you use to obtain money, those things you use are a gift. It's all a gift of grace. Now, I will share this one more time because this is the last time I'll ever preach on this topic. So if you've heard this, I'm sorry, but this is my favorite example of this. I have tried to find this on YouTube and search the web, and I can't find it for some reason, but... In the 80s, there was a McDonald's commercial, <laughs> and uh, I don't know if you remember it, but the idea is that dad, I don't remember if it was a son or daughter, um, but they're sitting in McDonald's, and dad brings a tray over, so gives his daughter the, uh, her happy meal or whatever, and she's eating, she's eating her fries, and for some reason, he just got a burger. And then he asks his daughter, oh, can daddy have a fry? What does she say? Do you remember? I'm, I'm a little older than some people here. Get your own fries. Yes. It's like pulls them back, may even slap, get your own fries, right? And it, at the time, it was a popular commercial because people laughed when they saw that. And you know why people laugh? They laugh because they know the fries came from dad. He gave her the fries. She would have no fries without her dad, zero. And on another level, if he wanted to, he could pull out his credit card and bury her in French fries. He could could probably buy out McDonald's and dump them on her head so that she has to, like, swim out to breathe. The fries come from Dad. And he's got the resources for so many more packages of french fries. If God asks for some of our fries, or he asks that we give a certain percentage of the fries back to him, why wouldn't we? They came from him in the first place, and he has so much more. I really think generosity is a gift to us. It's not a gift to God. God doesn't need anything from us. But generosity is the thing that reminds us that we aren't in control, that reminds us that we can trust our Father in heaven to provide for us. And by giving away, it's a little bit of a risk, but it allows the grace of God to become more real for us. Giving's for us. for the impact it has in our lives and how that impacts everything else. So, last area. What are some practicals of generosity? Well, consider this. If you ever heard a a Bible teaching on giving, at some point it usually comes back to this. But I think it's really helpful. This is from Malachi. You know, we spend a lot of time in Malachi. (laughs) Chapter 3 where God is speaking to his people, and he says, bring the whole tithe into the storehouse, that there may be food in my house. Test me in this. That's pretty famous. Test me in this, says the Lord Almighty, and see if I will not throw open the floodgates of heaven and pour out so much blessing that you will not have room enough for it. Now, I only just read that, but I wonder if you can see all of the parallels between this passage and our main text for today. And this is the one place, famously, where God encourages people to test him. Usually it's like, don't test me, trust me. Here he says, test me. Have you ever considered putting God to the test? And I've, I've pointed to this, but growth requires risk, Right? Generosity requires risk. So I want you to do this. I want you to close your eyes just for a moment. And I want you to imagine there are no limitations in your life. No fear of running out or not making a mortgage or whatever it might be. Food, clothes, really meaningful stuff. None of those are limitations. How generous would you like to be? Most of us would like to be more generous. It's not that we don't want to, it's just we're afraid. How generous would you like to be? And in your mind's eye, what does it look like when you imagine it? What's happening? What are you doing? What's happening in the lives of people around you? How's that impacting you? Just sit with that picture for a moment. You know, maybe part of that picture, maybe not the whole thing, but part of it, is the next move for you in experiencing more of the provision of God in every way in your life. Let me ask you, have you ever considered a regular pattern and commitment of giving to this community? A regular commitment that is a risk, a step for you. You can open your eyes, by the way. Have you ever thought about that? Now, here's where I have a little advantage. Since... uh, I shortly will not be the senior pastor here. Uh, In some ways, uh, in a lot of ways, the the generosity that happens here uh, doesn't have an impact on my livelihood. So I feel like in a new way, I can talk about this and be a little less careful. You okay with that? (laughs) A lot of you already live in this. Uh, You've built generosity into the fabric of your life. And today is really just to remind you of the reasons that you're doing that, because you don't always see it, and it doesn't always feel like that. That's part of what living by faith is, believing in what you cannot see. So sometimes you feel it, and you get tastes, and it's obvious. Other times you're thinking, wow, I could have done this, this, or that with that money. You know, or if the community disappoints you sometimes, right? Right? So today is to remind you of the reasons that you're giving, what you're hoping for, what your faith is compelling you to dream of and hope for, uh, the multiplied effect of your generosity in your whole life. And some of you have been coming for years, but you rarely give, or you give way below your means. And I just want to ask you, do you believe any of what I just said today? Do you believe it? Do you believe that generosity affects every area of your life? Do you believe that in however imperfectly that this community has been a blessing to you or your friends or your kids? Now think. If everyone contributed the way that you contribute, would the church survive? Let's say you have a decent paying job. I know some of you are between jobs. Some of you are struggling paycheck to paycheck. But let's say you have a decent paying job. You're, you're, you're not worried month to month. You know, multiply what you give by, say, 100 or 80. Ooh. Our budget is about $300,000. Would we get close to that? And I mention this because it's time to step up. This doesn't affect my livelihood, my salary, but it's time to step up to pull your fair share. And if you're doing better than the average bear, praise God, and give more than the average bear. And I'm saying this for a couple reasons. Why would I say this? First, I would say I believe everything in this sermon today and that it's for your own good in every way. And if you feel insecure, unstable, worried about the future, generosity is key to flipping that. It may not be the only key, but it is a significant key. And you'll never get there if you ignore it. They'll always be a part of you trying to hold on, trying to control, never really experiencing the peace of knowing that God can care for you. And instead of trusting the promises of money, I'd encourage you to trust the promises of God. So much better for your soul. So that's the first thing. It really is for your own good. I really believe that. It's not just a shtick. Second, this is a key time where your generosity is more important than ever. As I've alluded to a couple of times, we're in the middle of a transition. I'm a co-founding pastor. Uh, I senior pastor from the beginning. And I'm moving out of this role, and we're going to have a new senior pastor for the first time. Now, rule of thumb in, in church circles and pastor circles, because we talk about these kinds of things, is that during a time of transition like this, giving in churches goes down. People feel anxious naturally, feel anxious about what is next. Some people take a wait-and-see approach. Let's not do that here. You know, we have found, I think, over the years, that the way things work other places, the things that have broken down or really significantly undercut other churches have brought us together and made us stronger. Let's see this area be another example of that. That over the summer and into the fall, through this transition, giving goes up. People commit more. They sh- what better time to live by faith in a community, in God's work through a community, than the time of transition? Transition. When you don't know who the next pastor is going to be, if you'll like that person. It's not about a person. This is a community. And you are committed, I hope, to the people sitting next to you. And in some senses, it certainly matters who the next pastor is, but in some senses, it doesn't. The commitment is to the people in this room and our work in the community. Let our experience in our church be different. It's time to lean in and to support more than you have before, to solidify what has come so that what is coming can flourish. And I say this because I love this church, and I love you. I really do. And I believe in this church and its future. And so what I'm asking is that we set up the future by living what we believe. If we took a test, like 90% of you would believe everything I just preached in this sermon. It's time to live what we believe in a new way. Let's set up the future. Let's see giving go up. Pray about this. And when the traditional expectation is that giving would go down, let's see something different. Buy in. In a, in a stressful transition time, buy in. Or re-buy in, re-up. I really believe we're imperfect. We make mistakes. I'm a very imperfect pastor. <laughs> but I also think there's something special happening here that's bigger than me. So, if you're not, get in the game. Sign up. And if you've sidelined yourself for a little bit, get your cleats back on. Put on your shin guards. It's not supposed to be easy. Nobody is perfect. This church is not perfect. We may have even not been what we want to be. But... We've always said we're hopeful people, not idealists. Idealists see what's wrong and decide that corrupts everything, and they opt out. In our members class, we always say this. We don't need idealists. They're no good. They don't help. We need hopeful people that know we live in the tension of the already and the not yet, that know things are not perfect, but hope and believe that just around the corner, the kingdom of God's going to break in, in your life, in this community, in the neighborhood. Be hopeful about what's coming next. Let's pray.